Thank you for joining us for our 2020 Annual Business Law Institute. It is important for us to uphold a Pulsinelli tradition of providing an innovative CLE program to our clients, general counsel friends, and Pulsinelli alumni, and given the circumstances, we are pleased to be able to do so in this virtual setting. During today's webinar, you will be asked to answer a CLE polling question. In order to receive your CLE Certificate of Attendance, you must answer the polling question. CLE certificates will be emailed within 48 hours after the webinar to all those who answered the polling question. We invite you to participate in today's session by using the Q&A box to submit questions to our speakers or for any technical assistance. If the speakers are unable to answer your question during the live presentation, they will reach out directly after the program. Please visit www.bli.polsonelli.com for additional information, including CLE application statuses, a detailed view of this year's schedule, and more. We look forward to connecting with you throughout the summer and coming back together in person next year. I'd now like to pass it over to my colleagues to kick off today's program. Good morning from Denver, Colorado. Um, I'm Liz Harding, a shareholder in our Privacy and Cybersecurity Group, and I'm going to be talking with my friend and colleague, John Cleary, who's a shareholder in the same group, um, practicing out of New York. Um, so we're going to talk about the CCPA uh, today, the California Consumer Privacy Act, um, which came into force um, in, on January 1st, 2018. Uh, 20, 20, 20, sorry, and, um, and um, has recently um, started with uh, enforcement actions as well. So let's take a little look about what CCPA is, and then we'll talk about um, how it's likely to be enforced um, and what we're seeing um, on the regulatory and, uh, and consumer rights side. So. The CCPA is, is a really important piece of privacy legislation here in the U.S. Um, it, it, it really is a game changer because it, it's really one of the first pieces of privacy legislation um, that, that doesn't just operate on an industry-by-industry industry basis, and probably more importantly focuses on not just the security of information in terms of data breach uh, requirements, but places actual privacy obligations around the protection of that data and the uh, responsible use of it uh, on businesses. Now, I think it's important to say that uh, although CCPA is, is novel, it is not uh, an isolated uh, development. We've got other states gradually um, inching up their, their privacy compliance uh, regulations, notably Nevada, and New York, um, with others in the pipeline. Um, we've also got uh, bills for federal privacy legislation pending in Congress. And importantly, um, you know, the, the, the reasoning behind those is that uh, you know, businesses and industry is very concerned about potentially having <clears throat> a patchwork quilt of uh, privacy legislation on a state-by-state -state basis that is all slightly different. Um, and the impact that that will have on, on businesses. Um, and so there, there is a move to push for a federal privacy legislation, um, but those bills are still pending. Um, so as I say, the CCPA um, came into force January 1, 2020. There was a grace period of six months for enforcement. 
Um, that enforcement uh, deadline started July 1, 2020, and the California Attorney General has clarified and confirmed that um, they did send out enforcement letters to companies uh, on July 1, so they are actively enforcing this uh, regulation. Um, we don't know yet what those uh, enforcement um, letters or actions look like because businesses have 30 days to cure violations, um, but I think as we get towards the fall, we'll start to have a, a clearer idea of how this uh, regulation is being enforced uh, by, the, by the Attorney General. So what does CCPA actually do? Okay, so it protects the, 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 the privacy of, of personal information of California residents. Um, it's, it's a really lengthy um, privacy regulation. It, it somewhat patterned on the European General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, uh, which came into force in, in May of 2018. And just a few high-level um, points as to what CCPA requires. Um, it, it requires a clear and transparent notice regarding how uh, a business uses data, what data it collects, what it uses it for, who it shares it with, um, and if it sells that information at all. It also really importantly provides new statutory rights to uh, California consumers. And those rights include um, the ability to request access, uh, deletion, or a copy of the data and to prohibit the sale of personal information. Now, the, the sale of personal information is, is really broadly defined. Um, if, if I had, um, you know, if I had a, a dollar for every, every time I heard, well, we don't sell personal information um, from a business, I, I, I would be wealthy. Um, but um, the, the definition of sale goes, goes beyond just the traditional I give you a database and you give me money type scenario. Um, and, and it really includes any use of data by a third party um, for their own purposes or other than for purposes of performing services on behalf of um, the, the business. So. That's a really important question to, to ask of yourself if you if you are subject to this regulation. Is you know do do we do we either knowingly do this in terms of maybe sharing with partners or sharing lists for marketing purposes, or inadvertently do we do it? Is there language in our contracts with our service providers that allows us to or that allows them to use the data for their own purposes? For example, you know in connection with improving their products and services. If, if data is sold, then there's an obligation for the company to place a do not sell uh, button on the home page of their website and everywhere that data is collected, uh, and a requirement to honor that do not sell request. All right, so who, who does CCPA protect? Um, it protects consumers, uh, and that is any California resident. Uh, residency is as defined in, in the tax regulations. Um, there is a limited exception under CCPA right now for employee and business data. And that is, it's not carved out of the definition of consumer, but there is an exemption for that data that's in place at the moment. Um, that exemption is due to expire at the end of the year. 
Um, and at the moment, uh, businesses are still required to provide notice of data processing um, to uh, employee data and to business data. So when you're, you're updating privacy notices for CCPA purposes, you have to factor in telling people, telling your employees and business contacts what you're doing with that data. But those employees and business contacts don't have uh, the right to exercise those consumer requests that we just looked at. So I'm going to whiz ahead a little bit um, here because I want to make sure John uh, can talk to you about regulatory enforcement. But I want to just touch quickly on, on who is subject to this from the, the compliance side. Um, any business that collects personal information um, or on behalf of, of which personal information is collected is subject to this regulation. Um, importantly, there are three thresholds. Um, and if any one of these is met, then a, a business becomes subject to CCPA, whether they are physically located in California or not. If you process information related to California residents and you hit one of these three thresholds, you are subject to this regulation. So either the business has got $25 million or more in, in um, past 12 months annual gross revenues, or if it buys or sells or receives or shares personal data of more than 50,000 um, California consumers or households, or devices. And this, the, the, this piece about devices is really important because personal information um, it, it includes uh, things like cookies, device ID, and IP address. Uh, so any, any business that's operating a website uh, potentially falls under the remit of the CCPA by virtue of information that it might collect about, uh, via cookies, etc. Or if a business earns more than 50% of its annual revenue from selling a consumer's personal data, that really applies to data brokers. So I'm going to hand over to John um, to talk about how CCPA is enforced um, just to to tee this up, there are two sides of enforcement. The California Attorney General uh, can enforce through fines. Um, the maximum fine for intentional violations of CCPA is uh, $7,500. Um, and for unintentional violations is, is $2,500. We don't know yet because we haven't seen enforcement actions how that's going to be applied. Would that apply with respect to every individual whose data has been, uh, in, in air quotes, misused? Um, or would it apply just because to, the, to the single action of the violation? Potentially, if it applies to uh, every individual, um, then that, that's a pretty hefty uh, potential fine. On the flip side, uh, which John's going to talk about, is a private right of action uh, for CCPA. Um, which allows individuals to uh, bring uh, a claim for, for damages for data breaches. So John, with that, I'm going to hand over to you, and um, thanks for listening. Great. Thanks very much, Liz, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is John Cleary. I'm a shareholder in the New York uh, office of Polsonelli, a member of the Tech Transactions and Data Privacy team. Um, I focus mostly on contested matters and litigation, but our, our group as a whole has done uh, over the past seven or eight years about 2,000 of these data incidents and violations after, as we, we call it, post-breach. Um, that has been and continues to be a very challenging environment for our lawyers and our clients of the threat environment out there and the regulatory environment. 
Um, so we have um, all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, experience across the 50 state attorneys general and, and the, some of the federal regulators, but we wanted to elevate CCPA for special attention in today's presentation <clears throat> because of the severity of it. And it's, it's a pattern that we think other states and the federal government will follow. Uh, and it's something that it can make a difference for companies to invest before the breach, to invest in compliance, invest in um, getting uh, these mandates uh, built into the systems, uh, even if it is just California, because there, there are other tag-along jurisdictions uh, in the queue um, as well. Um, it, beyond the idea that this is a, a good idea uh, to get everyone's attention, the second bullet here is statutory damages of $100 to $750 per consumer per incident is meant to be a further <laughs> to be a, to get the message across that uh, by by law now there, there's no such thing as a no damage class action anymore in California for for actual violations of CCPA uh, violations being uh, breaches of data and not uh, not the the do not delete buttons and, and the other regulatory elements but an actual compromise of someone's privacy is 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 a violation. Uh, that's long been the case, but now that frequently the defense side of these cases is won by showing no injury and no standing, that's ended with this new uh, approach of $100 to $750 per consumer per incident. We'll give you some examples of how that plays out a little later in the, in the presentation. So let's go to... So... The uh, private enforcement. This is a this uh, the the plaintiff bar comes to the same conventions we come to, and they they've seen this coming. This is a, a you know like many statutory schemes, the the legislators in California are counting on private uh, law firms and plaintiffs uh, lawyers to um, enforce and to be rewarded for enforcing this by getting you know getting cases on file that have a, a private right of action. Um, the before CCPA. The two main defenses were no injury and no causation. Um, and uh, not to get too deep into the weeds of that, but to be in federal court, you need a, a justiciable case or controversy, which in turn requires an actual injury. And historically, uh, you know, risk of future identity theft did not constitute actual injury. So many of those cases were dismissed at the pleading stage. That has led to a split in the circuits that more and more courts are turning to uh, imminent risk of identity theft being eligible to count as uh, um, injury in fact and to, and to meet the standing threshold. Um, but as you move ahead, as I said before, when, once the injury is $100 by law, that is an actual injury, $100. It'll be debated whether that counts as a constitutional injury or not, but, but it ends all doubt that there will no longer be dismissals because it's a no injury uh, class action. Uh, as I'll get into a little later, it also, the other big fork in the road for any of these cases is whether a class will be certified by a federal court or a state court. The um, private right of action in the CCPA make, changes that calculus uh, considerably and will make it easier to have a class uh, certified for reasons I'll get to in a minute here. So this is just a, a brushing up on the typical requirements. This is federal law, but the state law often follows the same. You, you have a lot of 
requirements for one individual to sue on behalf of 100,000 or a million other people as a representative, as a class representative, numerosity, commonality, typicality, adequacy of representation of the, the fitness of the class rep and the council. Uh, beyond that, to have a damage ca uh, class action, you have to have common questions of law or fact predominate over individual issues, which is the predominance requirement. You also have to have a class action being superior to other methods of adjudicating the controversy, which is called superiority. Okay, so this is what I've just said, that current law, very few cases get certified. So frequently a, class, a, a data breach class action will go through the pleading stage and will founder on class cert being denied and the case will just be a one or two or three individuals uh, if it's not dismissed for lack of standing. Um, I think the number of classes actually certified before CCPA would be three or four over the past 10 or 12 years at most. Most of the rest are, are not or are contested. Uh, also, uh, more frequently, these cases will settle while class cert is pending because the judges realize that a decision on class cert will, will end the ability to settle the case. So it's, it, if it's a close question, it's just left pending and a mediator is appointed and there'll be a, a class action settlement where both sides agree to certify a class and then the, the judge has to uh, approve the reasonableness of that and allow objectors and so forth. Uh, also, as I say, the increased risk of identity theft without other concrete injury is generally not sufficed before CCPA. That will suffice after CCPA, or may suffice. And this is what I've said already. It's By law, it's 100 to uh, $750 per consumer uh, per incident. I'll give you an example in another slide or two of how that, that could really add up in a hurry <laughs> if you have 100,000 or a million people. Uh, let me go to the next here. And this is the, the point about um, class, class action law firms and class representatives have typically face an uphill battle showing typicality, predominance, and superiority. Uh, Frequently, they'll have one person, a victim of a data breach that would have affected 100,000 people, and the one person will say, well, shortly after this, my credit rating changed, or someone tried to um, steal my identity and withdraw money from my bank account. Um, but those are anecdotes. Those anecdotes can support an inference of causation and an inference of damage, but only for one person. So it's very hard to get some series of facts that show scalable causation. There's causation for 100,000 people. Um, it does happen when there's a, you know, a criminal wrongdoing or the attacker uses the data to injure large groups of people, and that could be shown. But by and large, it's very difficult for one person's um, inf inferential information or anecdotal information to be scalable. And on that basis, these class actions are frequently uh, unsuccessful. go to the next here. And the second point here, of course, this drives up the exposure. Um, it also unsettles, there is, there's not a going rate really to settle a class action, but there is experience and there are court approved settlements at the federal and state level pre-CCPA 
that can allow well-represented plaintiffs and defendants and their insurance carriers to negotiate and to reach settlements that are, you know, in in line with historical results, that's going to be very difficult to reestablish a new equilibrium of that after CCPA because there are no verdicts and there are no settlements and the first cases are just coming in now as, as complaints. So everyone, well, there's a consensus that it'll be a, a different, um, uh, there, you know, it'll be a different dynamic to settle the case, but there won't be a body of 50 or 60 approved settlements to look to to compare your own client situation versus the, the settled cases already in the, you know, of record. Now, this is one we wanted to spend a little bit of time on. The um, trying to look ahead. There's a polling. Yeah. Okay. So the only there, we, you know, there's no real um, there, the the law on its face does allow a defendant to say I had reasonable security, and that supposedly defeats the private right of action or is a is a defense to the private right of action and would allow a typically theoretically a defendant to have a defense verdict. Reasonable security is not really defined, um, but it taps into many of the points that Liz made about what is your attack surface, what is your business, how many California consumers do you interact with? Are you on do you meet the thresholds for CCPA? And what have you done you know, and, and there are different industry codes that set out reasonable standards. Some of them coalesce, like NIST and other organizations, coalesced around the same basic principles. Um, this, it, it has been our advice that this is, a, this is the time to invest in this and have reasonable security and that's documented of what was done, what was looked at on, a, on an interdisciplinary basis between your lawyers and your your forensic or your information technology experts to have reasonable security. It doesn't mean perfect security, but in theory, this is a defense, or by law, this is a defense. If if a company were to be sued, even reasonable security can sometimes have a, a violation. So this is, it puts some kind of balance into CCPA, but it is very undefined. Uh, I will say as a litigator, the second best choice of how to show reasonable security is to hire experts during a lawsuit and argue retroactively like this was reasonable, because it may well be, but a contemporaneous um, record of the company's incident response plan, the company's compliance plan, the company's attack surface, you know, cyber hygiene, the threat environment um, is, you know, far and away more compelling and more uh, as I say, more contemporaneous than having experts after the fact debate each other in court about what would have been reasonable. But that is important to keep in mind that this can be, companies can make a difference now to um, work on this defense and not only to defend lawsuits, but actually to protect data better and to you know protect the rights of consumers that have entrusted in California who have entrusted their data to, the, to companies. I wanted to talk about the minted case. Let me see if there's a. Also, update. Okay, so update on enforcement. 
uh, AG enforcement actions, as Liz said, those started um, July 1. They're out there. There's nothing really of record yet, but they've, they've said they're coming out with that. Also be aware the AG um, office also does the regulations in support of CCPA. So those, those went through three or four public hearings. Um, I'm not entirely sure where they are, but not much was changed, and there's been a lot of angst in the published literature of some of the unresolved issues in the regulations. Um, and just to add another layer of complexity in November, I, I gather there's a referendum <laughs> in California to put, have another CCPA or an even more complex or more demanding CCPA on the books if the referendum passes in uh, November. So very, very complicated environment. Uh, in California, um, but it, it's, as we've said, you know, this is a time to, it's not quiet at the moment, but it's going to get busy, and this is the time to assess whether a company is exposed to CCPA and what, uh, what measures can be implemented to, you know, upgrade um, defenses and, and cybersecurity. The, um, hey, John. The class action. John, oh, one yeah, quick. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Liz. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I wanted just to, to throw one quick um, point in um, on um, a couple of these class action um, lawsuits. And I'm not a litigator, but my read of them is that, you know, they, they seem to be being filed with not a great deal of regard for what the CCPA actually may, may say. And so coming back to your point of, you know, reasonable security, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these in discovery are going to be asking for copies of privacy notices and, you know, other things more on the compliance side than the, you know, the, the kind of hard security side. Um, and and you, I know you're going to talk about that in the context of, of maybe the minted suit, but I just wanted to flag that as a you know, I, I feel like it, sometimes people kind of put a, a hard line between security and the privacy compliance piece. But I think if, if folks get hit with a class action lawsuit uh, following a breach, that, that left-hand side, as I look at it, of the compliance is, is going to come into play in any defense or at least having to answer um, in, in terms of discovery. Completely, completely agreed. I mean, this is this this has um, a lot of moving parts. That and frequently we we say in litigation that the, each one's each each one's a surprise. Everything was reasonable until some breach happened. Well, the breach, the, the attack vector that leads to a breach of the privacy of a hundred thousand people, they tend to be sometimes they're repeats, but frequently they're unique, or they have an accident, or some slip up, or some unimagined, or some zero day. Uh, you know, attack of some kind that all the all the reasonableness in the world never could have stopped. So that would be the lit litigation defense to that. But but to Liz's point, Liz's point, the the actual mandates of CCPA are known and are measurable and can be by and large can be implemented. The unknowns are, are attackers of violations, but the known piece there's a lot of ground to cover for a lot of companies to get this on board and get on a on a glide path. To um, to compliance, and then I think Liz, many times the the injured if there's injury from this, sometimes it arises from non-compliance of regulatory points. Sometimes it's just a surprise or something wholly separate from the, C the CCPA yeah. uh, entitlements and mandates. 
Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do agree. Like we, Liz and I get a, a sweep every day. Of there's, there's pretty much one a day, one every other day of, of new class actions in California, and they could be in other states as well if they have California residents implicated somehow. Um, that uh, nominally plead CCPA private right of action. Liz is right. We'll see if that holds up. Um, but the one we had in our, I think we had a, a, um, the mint. Oh, I'm sorry, I went too far. The minted case here. Um, just as a, just again, on just reading the front of the the, the complaint. This is about two weeks ago. Um, it was some kind of breach, I think, of, a, of not medical, but like a credit card and uh, profile information, but not social security numbers. On the face of the complaint, there were 73.2 million records compromised uh, for a national, what, what the pleaders called a national class of 5 million people, then a California class of 750,000 people. So right there, if you took those 750,000 people in California, and assuming CCPA applies, at $100 minimum each, that's $75 million minimum just on the face of the complaint, where before CCPA, that minimum would be zero, <laughs> and now it's $75 million. So it's a startling, startling set of consequences. Uh, frequently, the members of classes like this have no injury. There, there's, there's, a, there's emotional appeal to these cases, of course, of, of risk of future identity theft or risk of compromise of data. But very often the plaintiffs are not able to meet their burden of proof of that, or it's speculation. Um, but we thought minted was a good example of there's a little bit of sticker shock on the first day of some of these cases of what if if it's literally correct, and the law is literally applied as stated to these kinds of cases, um, it's it's going to I think dramatically incentivize companies to comply, and to um, invest certainly to defend the case but also to invest in the compliance pieces that we've uh, tried to underscore here um Liz, do we have any other class action examples there have been a couple more i think but so, there's, there's a couple and i'm blanking on them um but but they relate to breaches that happened um pre um january 1 2020 um, so yeah. I, I actually need to go back and, and see where those are headed. But I, as far as I know, Minted is the, the first one that, that really focuses on a breach that happened post-CCPA implementation. Well, and, and also I think there's just a, we, we do sit back and marvel sometimes at the creativity of the plaintiff lawyers that are deployed on these cases. I mean, they're, they're doing what the law you know, incentivizes them to do. But more and more, for instance, we're seeing the, the biometric law from Illinois, BIPA, pleaded in California cases, which <laughs> is a long way from Illinois, but you know, a legitimate venue for that. Uh, also, the minted here has a national class and a state-specific class in the same case. So that there's a lot of creativity to stack these entitlements to um, um, work together the, the substantive and procedural rights to synergize them to these different kind of cocktails of claims and venues and problems for defendants that will, will be a fairly knotty challenge over the next two or three or four years. And, and we mentioned we alluded to standing as an issue. There's also going to be a lot of tension in these cases. Do they belong in state court or federal court and with what um, ramifications? So very, very fascinating set of things coming. But our advice is along the lines of what Liz said is to 
if if the thresholds are, are met to invest now and to get compliant and to just nothing will be no, it, it, perfection is really not the goal, but to but to strengthen security and bring things into compliance and have be on a glide path that also shows reasonableness is the best overall advice from this whole uh, kind of vortex of, of changes in the threat environment and the regulatory environment and the uh, litigation environment. Um, and Ashley, were we ready for the the survey at this point or the polling? Or? Yes. Thank you. Yeah, everyone, this is the first CLE polling question for today's program. You do need to answer to receive CLE credit. You should see the question in the slides box. Companies located outside California have no exposure to CCPA regulatory fines or private rights of action. Please select true or false and hit the submit button located in the lower right-hand corner of the slides box. If for some reason you are not seeing the polling question on your screen, please refresh your browser to submit. Again, companies located outside California have no exposure to CCPA regulatory fines or private rights of action. Again, select true or false and hit the submit button located in the lower right-hand corner of the slides box. If you are having issues submitting, please email events at postnelli.com. I'll give you guys just another 30 seconds to answer that, and then we'll get moving on. Again, select true or false, and the submit button is in the lower right-hand corner of that slides button. Well, Liz, we uh, blocked out five minutes for you to explain. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think no, we're pretty much out of time, but I'll, um, I'll say the answer to this is, is false. If you are um, located outside of California, um, but you do business in California and you hit one of those three thresholds that we talked about, um, you, uh, you, you are subject to CCPA and, and you do have that exposure to regulatory fines or private rights of action, um, sadly. So with that, I think we, uh, we, we probably uh, need to, to hand over to our esteemed colleagues on the IP side. Great. Over to uh, Taryn Elliott. Great, thanks, guys. That was really informative. Um, my name is Taryn Elliott, and Michael Doolin, John Posthumus, and I are each shareholders in the Denver office and specialize in various aspects of intellectual property protection. We're going to talk with you about how to maximize the value of your IP portfolio. So IP, including patents, are valuable business assets, and they're often critical to securing market position and competitive advantage. One difficulty, though, for many companies is balancing the expense of obtaining a patent with the legal reality that if you don't file for patent protection at the appropriate time, you may permanently lose the ability to do so. This decision is even more difficult in times like these where minimizing costs is so important. Many of you know what a patent is and have either heard or have firsthand knowledge that obtaining a granted patent can take a very long time and preparing and obtaining it followed by keeping it alive with maintenance fees can be quite expensive. But what many of you may not know is that there's actually two different types of patents, utility patents and design patents. And there's a significant difference in the amount of money and the time it takes to obtain them. $15,320. That seems like a, a lot of money, right? Well, that's your best case scenario of what you are going to pay over the lifetime of a utility patent to the U.S. Patent Office in just their costs alone. It doesn't include the additional fees to the patent office that usually accompany ordinary utility patent prosecution, 
and doesn't include the attorney time to prepare and prosecute the application. 1660. Now, that's a number that's easier to swallow. Same figures and costs to the patent office, but for a design patent. Okay, so what about the time it takes to obtain a utility patent versus a design patent? Two to four years on average from filing to grant for a utility patent. And you're most often not even going to receive a substantive response from the patent office for an average of 14 to 18 months after filing. Sure, you can pay the patent office a fee of $4,000 to expedite it, but that's still going to take at least a year on average to obtain a granted utility patent. On the other hand, without expediting a design patent application, the average pendency from filing the grant is one to two years. You typically hear from the patent office much faster, and when you do, it is relatively often a communication that allows the application to proceed to grant. Such first action allowances are rare on the utility side. Even better news, for just a $900 fee compared to the $4,000 fee for the utility patent, you can expedite this timeline for a design to approximately two to three months. All right, so now that we've established that design patents are considerably cheaper and faster to obtain, Michael, tell us, what exactly is a design patent and what can be protected with it? Yes, good morning, everybody. Michael Doolin from Paul Sinelli. I'm one of the IP litigators here. Um, let's talk a little bit about what design patents are. Design patents uh, may be granted to anyone who invents new, original, and ornamental design for an article of manufacture. Um, that's the technical definition of what a design patent is. An article manufacturer is one of the four different types of inventions that are protected by patents, generally speaking, in the U.S. patent law. The other types are processes, which are methods, machines, and compositions of matter. So if you have an article of manufacture, you can look to a utility patent or a design patent to protect it. Um, design patents are becoming more popular because of some of the things that Taryn just talked about as far as speed of obtaining them and price, but also uh, they have a unique um, category of damages that you can get, and also they, they, quite frankly, protect different matter. So in a design patent, um, it may relate to the configuration or shape of an article or the surface ornamentation uh, that's applied to an article or a combination of surface ornamentation and the configuration of the article. Um, that's different than a utility patent that protects the way an article is used and works. Um, right? It's just the way it looks as opposed to the way it works and, and more the structure of that. Um, the surface ornamentation is inseparable from the article in which it applies. You can't, you can't patent the surface ornamentation itself. It has to be the actual article of manufacture. So if you think about it in those terms, as you're looking at products that perhaps your company sells, then you can, you can start to look at it in a little bit different view. Is, it, is there something here visually and aesthetically that's protectable? Because the design patents cover the appearance of the article, but not the structural and utilitarian features. Uh, what can be protected? There's a lot of different things that can be protective in a lot of different industries. Um, there are some industries that are particularly suited for protection because they're very visually oriented products that are developed, and people look at those products and identify them as something that a certain company produces. So it can be, it can be really important to be able to keep people from knocking those products off by having something that looks just like it. And these are some examples that we have here, including uh, things like fashion and vehicles, um, jewelry, and a variety of other things that are, um, that are pretty commonly protected by design patents. We'll go into some specific examples here. 
Um, John, I'm going to pass to you. Thanks, Michael, and uh, hello, everybody. I'm John Posthumus. Uh, I'm a, a shareholder uh, in the Trademark Advertising and Design Patent Litigation Group uh, here at uh, Posanelli. Um, a number of slides that you'll see coming up uh, are the, the kind of the visual examples of what Michael was talking about uh, in terms of the types of protection that you can uh, try to obtain using a design patent. Uh, and the first uh, slide that we're talking about here is packaging. And these are three different types of uh, design patents. What you're seeing here are actual drawings from the, from the design patents themselves. And so, for instance, in the uh, upper left-hand corner, you have an insert for a container. Uh, that um, So the, the design patent can protect an actual part of the packaging, uh, which is, uh, in this case, an insert. You'll see that there are solid lines and dotted lines uh, that's somewhat um, um, vague on the, uh, the, the image, but when you get to the, and you look at a design patent, you'll, you'll notice uh, different types of lines. The, the solid lines uh, um, denote the area of protection. That's what you're claiming as part of the design patent. Uh, moving over to the beverage container, this is a little bit different because now uh, you're looking at trying to protect the actual configuration of the beverage itself, the beverage container itself. Uh, so you'll note that it's got uh, nice edges and nice uh, look to it. The design patent would protect the, the look of this particular container. And then uh, the, the final example that's shown here is uh, an ornamental design that's on the packaging itself. Clearly, the rectangular box that would hold the oral product is not um, part of the, um, you know, is not unique. We all know that these types of boxes have been around for a while, but um, the actual design itself that's shown, which is just purely ornamental, uh, that's applied to the packaging, uh, would be subject to uh, design uh, patent protection. So, um, as Michael mentioned a little bit earlier, um, the um, uh, design patent is not limitless in terms of protecting ornamental design. And so, Michael mentioned a little bit earlier that the design itself has to be attached to an article of manufacturer. And in this particular case, uh, which was recently decided by the Federal Circuit, the uh, Federal Circuit said that a design patent cannot cover just the design itself. It has to cover the ornamental design as part of uh, a chair in, in this particular case. And so um, uh, it's not limitless, but at the same time, design patent protection does have um, uh, many advantages uh, that uh, we'll continue to talk about here. And I'm going to hand it over to uh, Taryn for a talk about fashion. Yeah, so fashion, you know, this can include articles ranging from apparel, handbags, luggage, footwear, accessories, beauty products, the list goes on. Um, and these types of articles may seem like obvious candidates for design patent protection with their emphasis on visual aspects and consumer attraction. Um, but in reality, they're actually, design patents are actually significantly underutilized in many aspects of the fashion industry, where companies tend to focus more on copyright and trademark protection in connection with their branding strategy. 
However, touching on what John discussed with respect to packaging, design patents are powerful assets um, with respect to any branding strategy. The look and feel of a product is important to building and maintaining that brand recognition. Design patents can complement copyright and trademark protection to protect important visual aspects of a fashion item. This can be the shape of the item design as a whole, as illustrated by the handbag example. It can be a portion of an item design illustrated by the shoe example, which claims only the strips on the shoe. Or it could be even a unique pattern that's applied to the fashion item itself. The infringement standard for design patents also fits in nicely with branding strategy. Unlike utility patents, which focus on technical features and often include complex expert testimony to map claim elements to a product to determine if that product infringes, design patent infringement focuses on the ordinary observer and whether such an observer would view the overall visual impression of the accused design substantially the same as the patented design in the context of the prior art. This Columbia case is an important case in the design patent world for many nuanced reasons, but for our purposes today, we're just using it to illustrate the considerations for infringement. The test itself focuses on overall visual impression where an accused party cannot escape liability by making minor visual changes to a design. These minor visual changes might include something along the lines of merely affixing your logo to an accused product. However, with uh, it holds that the visual element and placement of an ornamental logo and its appearance may actually affect the overall visual, visual impression of the design in such a way that it may, may be significant enough to avoid liability. Here's the patented design compared to the accused design of that Columbia case. The patented design includes a pattern, and the accused design places an ornamental logo within that pattern. The court held that the impact of the ornamental features of the logo and its placement on the overall visual impression of the accused design as compared to that patented design should be considered. Turning it back to John to talk about vehicles. Thanks, Taryn. Um, so the, um, this is a, a slide that shows some examples of uh, vehicles. Uh, that are subject to design patent protection. Uh, you have an aircraft here, you have an autonomous vehicle, uh, as well as a, uh, a, a car, or, uh, you know, a, a, a sports car, which is, uh, you know, pretty cool uh, that these types of designs can be protected. Um, another category, which is something that is uh, kind of an advanced strategy that I'll talk about in terms of using design patents, is replacement parts. So for example, the, uh, uh, the tire, uh, the configuration of the treads on a tire can be protected on a design patent. Um, and then uh, with regard to the following case I'm gonna talk about in the next slide, they pertain to this uh, picture of a vehicle hood as well as a vehicle headlight. And these are uh, parts that are found on a Ford uh, F-150 Raptor, um, and so uh, and they're actually replacement parts. And so there was a recent case uh, from the Federal Circuit here involving Ford, uh, where uh, Ford had um, gotten design patent protection for the hood and for the uh, headlamp, and they were able to use that design patent protection 
to be able to exclusively provide the aftermarket with those two particular items um, and to exclude others from competing with them in that aftermarket uh, um, uh, situation. So it was, a, it was a new law that the Federal Circuit came up with that um, uh, really and, and, you know, showed the advantages of, of uh, how Ford was uh, trying to extend patent protection beyond the initial product, in this case the Ford F-150 Raptor, to the secondary market where obviously there are, um, you know, needs to replace parts and uh, Ford was uh, positioned themselves to be the exclusive provider of those parts in that aftermarket. But there are other examples as well, and I'll hand it over to Michael to talk about uh, uh, those in the um, edible products area. Yeah, like John mentioned, um, edible products is uh, they're a good target for design patents um, because they typically have a unique look that can be protected apart from any any of the functional aspects of it. Um, commonly see it in chocolate bars, confections, pet treats, and things like that. Um, and, and the way you do a design patent, you can see on the pet treat there, there's lines and ways you can show curvature and, and really capture the essence of what that design is that makes that product unique from other products. Another interesting uh, area of design patent law is the construction industry. Um, companies, particularly companies like Apple, um, but other companies are starting to become much more savvy with protecting their buildings through design patents. Here we have an example of a building, and you can patent the entire building, or you can patent just individual design elements of that building. Um, the building in the upper left is not the design, it's not the Apple Store in New York, although the Apple Store in New York is covered by a design patent. Um, but a large project may have dozens of ornamental features that could be patented. And so architects may be, are, are starting to work with patent lawyers as they're designing buildings to be able to protect very unique things of very iconic buildings that uh, warrant that type of protection. Another example are things like an x-ray device, injection, de <coughs> uh, injection devices, stents, pharmaceutical tablets, things within the healthcare industry that have uh, unique ornamental designs that protected and their products that look unique and the doctors identify with. And so design has provides protection there as well. Karen? Okay. Moving on to graphical user interfaces, we've talked a lot about physical products, even unconventional ones like Michael was just talking about which are prime candidates for design patent protection. But what about areas like software, virtual reality, augmented reality, mobile apps, social media, television? All of those things that are occupying a lot of our time these days on screen. Are design patents right for them? Yes. Um, and these are great for design patent protection because the user experience and interaction with these features is often the most important aspect of them and often the first thing that a competitor will copy. You can protect, as shown in these images, the, the static frames and features of these interfaces as well as animation or transitions. Now, these are a bit nuanced to obtain, so it's important to have an attorney that specializes in this area um, involved from the beginning, especially if international protection is desired, since many countries have significantly different requirements for the area. If it's not done well at the beginning, there's little opportunity to address it later. So 
along the lines, um, you can also protect the consumer product aspect of such interfaces and other things. And I'll let Michael talk in more detail about this one and the case that follows from it. Yeah, one of the cases that's been very high profile is the Samsung versus Apple cases. And there's been a number of litigations and fighting back and forth relating to uh, smart devices, smartphones and the iPhone, etc. And one thing that has come out of those is that a product, uh, there was a verdict in favor of Apple for its uh, design patent that covers its iPhone. And the design patent in particular covered the rectangular front face with the rounded edges and the colorful icons and the black screen. And so they won an award of $399 million for Samsung's infringement of that design patent. Samsung ultimately appealed that, and um, going, it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court held that the $399 million in damages covered the entire smartphone and the value of that. But actually, the patent could cover something less than the entire article of manufacture, and so it was sent back down to the lower court um, to be reconsidered, considering the fact that that, that design patent only covered a portion of the value of that phone. Uh, this slide shows what, through these, these smartphone phone wars, ultimately Apple received $533 million related to its design um, patents. And in fact, some of their utility patents were invalidated where their design patents weren't. And so um, that's in comparison to a $5.33 million awards related to the utility patents. So you can see the design patents were much, much more lethal in, in these wars, and in fact oftentimes are. And there's a whole section of the Act that relates to um, damages specifically for design patents, and so they're really a good tool to use to get heightened damages. So um, the Design patents are very helpful uh, in counteracting against uh, counterfeits. And, um, and, and unfortunately, counterfeits are uh, a growing problem. Um, consumers uh, spend over half a trillion dollars annually on counterfeit products, and over 70% of which is sold online, which is, um, raises a lot of enforcement issues and on uh, how you counteract that. Um, so, which uh, obviously design patents play a key role in in um, in counteracting. So, I, I think uh, Ashley, are we up for the the next uh, polling question here? Yes, we are. Yeah, this is the last CLE polling question for today's program. Again, you must answer to receive CLE credit. You should see the question in the slides box. A design patent covers the look and feel of an article. Please select true or false and hit the submit button located in the lower right hand corner of the slides box. If for some reason you are not seeing the polling question on your screen, please refresh your browser to submit. Again, a design patent covers the look and feel of an article. Please select true or false and hit the submit button located in the lower right-hand corner of the slides box. If you are having issues submitting, please email events at polsonelli.com. I'll give you guys about another 45 seconds to answer, and then we'll wrap up with Taryn here in a sec. Again, select true or false and use that submit button.
Great. Thank you, guys. Taryn, I'll pass it back to you. Okay, great. Thanks, Ashley. And from the looks of the answers, most of you have been paying attention, which is great. Um, so as we touched on, there are many benefits to design patents. They're cheaper and faster obtained, which can be critical for many companies, especially when every dollar matters and we're losing critical time waiting for an issued patent. May mean, mean, may mean all the difference in a significant loss of market share, other harm caused by an infringer. The term for a patent from grants is from grant as opposed to from filing, which can often give a different timeline of patent protection of a product than with respect to a utility patent. There's no maintenance fees, so once you obtain the design patent, you're done. That's all you need to do for its life. That gives companies the ability to build a large portfolio of issued patents without having to worry about the cost to keep them alive. International patent protection is not only possible for designs, talked about with respect to the U.S., it's also much cheaper and much faster to obtain a patent, a design patent in foreign countries as compared to utility patents which means that it provides a company with the ability to obtain some foreign protection while minimizing what can often be significant costs. As Michael briefly discussed, design patents have higher potential damages than utility patents and are often harder to invalidate. That means that even if your product isn't created with the visual aspects in mind or those aspects really aren't important to the end product, it's still worth considering obtaining a design patent, especially considering this. And that's been so with respect to those unconventional designs like the edible products and the buildings and, and, and those types of, and the medical um, instruments, those types of things you wouldn't traditionally think of as having design visual features. Finally, unlike utility patents, design patents may be utilized in enforcement against online infringers, as John mentioned, which is in today's environment an increasing problem for many companies. There's also a bipartisan bill currently in consideration that if passed will allow Customs and Border Patrol agents to seize infringing products at the border based on their analysis, their own analysis of a design patent. Right now that's limited to trademark and copyright protection. All right, so this presentation isn't intended to dissuade you from pursuing utility patent protection, trademarks, or copyrights. These types of IP protection mechanisms are very important. However, the best way to maximize the value of your IP portfolio while minimizing costs is, is to consider design patent protection as well in your overall comprehensive patent and branding strategies. Thank you for your time, and please reach out to us if you have any questions. Great. Thanks, Taryn. This concludes today's webinar. CLE certificates will be emailed within 48 hours directly to all who answered the polling questions. A recorded version of the presentation will be available on the BLI website within 24 hours. Thank you for your participation.